Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Does this ever happen to you? You're driving to work and you seem to just hit every light, every single one red. It might just delay your commute a few minutes, but it's infuriating. Then there are those glorious days when the waters seem to part and it's a sea of green all the way to your destination. Traffic is one of the most complex systems we have in our crowded world, and there's a science behind making those traffic lights work, not just for cars, but for buses, sometimes trolleys, for pedestrians and bikes. So today we'll talk to some traffic experts. For listeners, drivers, pedestrians, cyclists, we want to hear from you. Do you have questions about traffic, traffic flow, and traffic engineering? You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Today, Jack Carey, associate at Fawcett O'Neill, an engineering consulting firm in Manchester, Connecticut, braved the traffic to join us in studio today. Jack, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming into Where We Live. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. So first of all, when we pull up to a traffic light, is this part of a system that is maybe city or town-wide, or is that traffic light just working on its own? Well, it depends where you are. If you're in a rural area, it's typically an isolated intersection. It's just operating based on its own detection and, and controller. But if you're in a city like Hartford or on a busy arterial like the Berlin Turnpike in the Newington area, that, the chances are it's running interconnected at the time of day you're there, and it's part of a system. And the uh, the system is tracking you through the various intersections and varying your green time so that hopefully you get a progressive movement through all the signals. And, and, and how's it tracking that? I mean, we always... Uh, know about those little plates that you pull up uh, to, the little cuts in the road. You assume that you roll up to a light and it senses that you're there. Is that how it knows that you're there? Well, the, the those are um, typically loops these days cut into the road. And the ones that are adjacent to an intersection are typically controlling that intersection itself. But sometimes you don't notice the ones that are in between intersections that are, are called system detectors. And those are monitoring your speed and counting the number of cars in the system and passing along that data to the individual intersections and the central control. So how long have we had systems like this? I mean, is this something that's been fairly standard in our state for some time, or has there been a big evolution in the way we we use sensors to figure out when traffic lights should fire? Well, it's kind of gone along with the evolution of the personal computer with the advent of microprocessors. There's literally one at every intersection, and that's able to process the data, and as the um, computers have advanced and the technology, um, the information that the detectors have been able to collect has helped control traffic. So we're talking a lot about traffic lights, and we'll get into some more systems that are being put in place in places like Pittsburgh and Utah. We always like to benchmark off of other places when we talk about systems like this uh, here on WNPR. Let's ask you a bigger, broader question, Jack. I mean, this whole idea of traffic engineering, what all goes into that? I mean, I, I called it a complex system before. I think a lot of people don't understand how complex as they're sitting in their car, maybe cursing the person who designed the road. Um, tell us a bit about the complexities that you deal with in, in engineering traffic flow. Well, it's um, traffic flow isn't just about vehicles. It's um, 
should should be more of a complete streets approach. Um, you've got pedestrian flow, you've got transit flow, you've got folks on bikes. So uh, you've got to factor that all in. Um, it's a lot to do with uh, the volume of those elements in the traffic flow. Um, a lot of the systems we're talking about today more deal with vehicular. But you've got to remember that they allow um, the use of the right-of-way um, to be more um, ample for pedestrian traffic. Um, you can use the system to uh, create gaps so that people can get out of their driveways. Um, you can use the system to give priority to transit vehicles. So it's, it's much more than just moving vehicles. It is much more than just moving vehicles, but something that we've kind of noted on the program before is, you know, a lot of our roads in an old state like Connecticut were, well, there were horse paths, and then they were eventually paved, and then there were a few cars on them. And right now, we seem to have an awful lot of roads in the greater Hartford area, certainly around Hartford, Bridgeport, and New Haven, where it almost seems as though we've got far too many cars for or on the road for the type of road that we have, that we're not almost able to to deal with how much traffic is on the road and maybe how many pedestrians and that sort of thing. Do you see that as a problem in, in lots of places that you work in in the state? Well, you know, if, if we lived in Washington or in a perfect um, Washington, D.C., that is, or a perfect uh, city that had a grid system, it's a heck of a lot easier um, you t- certainly touched on a good point that because of Connecticut roadways involved, they're at, you know, very um, disparate um, separation and speeds are different. So it's a challenge, but it still can be accommodated, um, might require more um, sensors in the roadway to uh, collect data and such, but uh, it's still possible. Um, and it's all about maintaining a platoon of cars as far as you can. Once that platoon disperses, Probably no need for this advanced um, control of vehicles. A platoon of cars? What do you mean? Well, a platoon of cars is a group of cars in a in a in a group. You know, in a, a very short headway, and you you try to move those cars through the system because, as you said, there's a virtually an unlimited amount of vehicles want to get get through. Say in the AM peak hour, um, you want to parcel that out into groups and get those groups through the system. Uh, we got a, a tweet from Joe who says, does Connecticut have more traffic lights per square mile than anywhere else in the universe, or does it just seem that way? <laughs> I, I think I can say it just seems that way, but, um, you know, you, usually there's a minimum spacing that you want to maintain between traffic lights so that the queues from one don't go into the other. So uh, there, there is an upper limit to the amount you can have per square mile or acre or whatever you want to count it. The, the decisions that are made as to where traffic lights are or how traffic flows, are those usually made at the city or town level? Are they made in some ways at the state level? Is it through consultants like you who help put together plans? I mean, who makes the decisions about where these things are placed? Okay, it depends on the jurisdiction, John. It's a state highway. Uh, the state has a lot to say about it, but they consult with the cities and towns with the ro- that the roads they control are in. If it's a city street, the city make uh, city staff would make up their mind whether a signal should be done, and usually they do rely on consultants to help them out. The um, the factors that lead to whether a signal goes in are things like sight line, traffic volumes, uh, crash experience, and the geometry. You wouldn't wanna, wouldn't want to put a um, traffic light in an unsafe location, for instance, on a curve where you couldn't see the lights or something.
Uh, we're talking today about traffic and traffic flow with Jack Carey. He's an associate in Fuss and O'Neill, an engineering consulting firm in Manchester. Later on, we're going to learn about how traffic is flowing in other places like Utah and Pittsburgh. And we're going to be talking more about a redesign of some of New Haven's city streets to go from one way back to two-way traffic. Let's go to the phones. Brett is in Newington, oh, the home of, in, in part, the uh, Berlin Turnpike and uh, a lot of other busy roadways. Brett, what is on your mind? Uh, major arteries like the Berlin Turnpike should be timed such that once you get on from whatever um, artery or whatever uh, capital area, whatever, gets it, you maybe stop at the first light, and then you catch every light green. You should, should. Now, I know coming home sometimes at the top where Hooters is heading south, I have just skirted under a, a yellow light at 70 miles an hour, and I can hit almost every single yellow light at 70 miles an hour. But the speed limit there is less than that. What's wrong with that? Well, I, I know the people who set up the things don't actually use the things. They don't, or, or they do, they don't notice that they have to stop at more than 50% of the lights of a major artery. Well, oh, br- Turn the lights so that you don't have to stop once you're on it. Very good. Well, hey, you won't have parking lots at 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock and in the morning. I never catch the parking lots because I'm never driving at that time. But when I do, oh, my Lord, don't these people know? Brett, thank you so much for the phone call. Uh, Brett uh, actually asked a lot of good things there that we want to get into. I think it's also the the first and only time anybody's ever mentioned Hooters on my program, which is interesting as well. Um, so first of all, Jack, this this notion that uh, that Brett has, he wants to be able to get on the Berlin Turnpike and be able to hit all the lights one after another. Is that the way it's supposed to be set up on the on the pike or other roads like that? Yes, but Brett mentioned one thing about speed, which is very important. Um, typically, systems are set that you go at the speed limit not 70 miles an hour, I believe he said. So um, a lot of people are mystified once I relay that if you go at the speed limit, you'll hit all the lights green. And and uh, that's um, um, point number one. Point number two, I, probably the Berlin Turnpike is the most traffic-engineered roadway in the state because of the Connecticut Department of Transportation's location in Newington on the Berlin Turnpike. Because they're on the different <laughs> right. So Yeah, that's right. Believe me, they want to get to work. And and get home. So uh, I think there's a lot of tweaks um, happen there um, all all the time. So I, I think the key message to Brett is try going the speed limit and and see how you do. And and often that's really what the engineering is about. It's to try to keep people going the speed limit, right? It's it's it, that's one of the functions of this is not to have people going as fast as they possibly can through all the lights. That's that's correct. Let, let's go to a call from Mark in Columbia. He's got a good question here. Hi, Mark. Um, I ride a motorcycle, and I am kind of out in the country, but occasionally encounter traffic lights, particularly in Willimannock or Manchester. And it just seems that in order to get a light to trip, uh, I always have to pull out a little and encourage the car behind me to pull up to the light. I was wondering why that was and if there's any way around that. Uh, so you're saying maybe the motorcycle isn't isn't heavy enough to trip off the plate? Yeah, I don't know if it's not heavy enough or if it's magnetic and there's not enough metal. I'm not sure how those work. Oh, interesting. Okay, very good. So, Jack, tell us about this. Okay. Well, first of all, um, John, we haven't used plates in a long time. They don't work. We we think about them as plates, but I I see what you're saying. So we don't use plates. What do we use? But um, we use loops, and it's important to answer this question. And uh, before everybody's eyes glaze over, um, (laughs) explain how loops work. Uh, You know, a, a piece of metal, the car, the vehicle, the truck. Um, goes through the area of the loop and and creates electric current or very small pulse. Um, It's a a law of physics known as Gauss's law. 
And um, that's how the car, the, the vehicle changes the light. So when you have a motorcycle, especially with a lot of plastics and, um, you know, carbon fiber materials and stuff, sometimes there's not enough mass. Uh, but the, fir- the first thing to do is complain. Call the Department of Transportation or the city that's whose uh, jurisdiction that loop is, and they can t- retune that loop to pick up less metal. And sometimes that um, takes care of the solution, um, but o- other times it doesn't, and um, it, it is a problem. What was suggested to wave the car behind you works very well, but uh, there's no one there. What are you going to do? Um, it's it's um, a, a problem, and uh, ho- hopefully the retuning of the loop can solve it. Uh, but before we take a break, I should ask you, you know, you talked about complaining maybe to the DOT or to a local jurisdiction about something. How do things get changed? I mean, we often see this where, you know, there's a terrible accident, say, at a at an intersection. And then after that uh, accident, we will see a change to the structure. Maybe a stop sign goes up if there wasn't a stop sign. A light goes in if there was just a stop sign, et cetera. What, what can people know about what makes change? And, and frankly, is it really just when terrible things happen, that's when we decide to re-engineer a bad intersection? Well, it's it's really important to have the support for uh, anything you're requesting of the local traffic authority. Um, usually that's the chief of the police or first selectman or whatever, and they know what's going on in their town. And, and if you can point out something um, to them and they, they are in agreement, um, the Department of Transportation takes a lot of stock in having the uh, the local official agree with the issue, and they'll assign someone to come out and take a look at it. I just want to get to one quick phone call before I break. John is in Goshen. Hi there, John. Hi. I just had a couple of quick comments to make, and I wanted the gentleman from the DOT to uh, explain them to me. First of all, many of the civil engineering jobs that were done were probably haven't been updated since the 30s, some of them. I live in an area of the northwest corner in Torrington, and I believe it has more stop signs and red lights than any other town in existence in the entire state. (laughs) Uh, here's the problem. With our new type of service economy, they're putting up these huge malls. And uh, the zoning boards are not paying attention to the flow of traffic. And what's happened is because the roads haven't been widened, widened and uh, we're overzoned in many areas. I see gas stations, convenience stores, and many malls and everything else placed in areas where they shouldn't be. In addition to that, the right turn on red in Connecticut is causing problems because people come to four-way intersections and someone else will be making a left-hand turn and they'll be passing a car in front of them on the right. Well, uh, John, John, let me get those two things to, to Jack, who I think used to work for the DOT, right? But, but you don't work for the DOT anymore. So a couple things. We've tackled this in the program before, and this is so important. Our friend Tom Condon, who's, uh, who's uh, retiring from the Hartford Current, uh, has written about this a lot. When we see sprawl and these mini malls coming up all over the place, what it means is a lot more intersections. They're not formal intersections, but ons and offs. And, and John's really worried about all the problems that these can cause. What do you say? Well, the uh, there's a... Um, statutes um, in Connecticut um, that cover large developments over um, 200 parking spaces or 100,000 square feet where they actually have to be reviewed by the Department of Transportation and often roadway improvements are are a requirement of that review. Um, So that kind of covers the large developments but um, the the right turn on red issue is really driver education um, I think most people in the state 
will look to their left before they make a right turn on red, but sometimes they forget about the left turn, protected left turn that's coming in from them in another direction. And uh, that's something that we have to remind people to do. And, and there are other states in which it's not legal to make a right turn on red, right? I'm, I don't believe there are any states anymore that don't have uh, right turn on red allowed. You know, they might word it differently or have hourly durations and things like that. But I believe it's pretty much universal. It's funny. I should have checked the checked the laws before I said that. Uh, I'm often stuck up in my uh, corner of the world, up in the northwest corner behind somebody with a New York plate. And they always wait. And they always wait. And they always wait. Well, we're talking with Jack Carey, an associate at Foss and O'Neill. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking with some experts on traffic flow. You can join us here on Where We Live. Traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights, no matter where they've been. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights, but only when they're green. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights, no matter where they've been. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights, but only when they're green. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. That is what I said. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights, but not when they are red. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. That is what he said. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights. He likes traffic lights, but not when they are red. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights, although my name's not Bamba. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I like traffic lights. I, oh God. This is where we live. We're asking folks what their least favorite intersection to drive through is and why. I would say my least favorite intersection to drive through is Farmington and Prospect. I think it's Oak Street and Hebron Ave and Glastonbury. The light systems are always kind of delayed. Seems like there's construction all year long. The Trout Brook Park Road one. It's always a problem with someone turning one way or another way. It's an incredibly dangerous on-ramp where you have to go from 0 to 60 in about 5 seconds or get tailgated. <laughs> People get passionate about traffic. Voices gathered on the streets of West Hartford by interns Dan Schultz and Sarah Flaherty. I'm John Dankowski. Today on Where We Live, we're talking about traffic and traffic flow. Traffic lights with Jack Carey, an associate at Fuss and O'Neill, an engineering consulting firm in Manchester, Connecticut. I want to bring into the conversation Lisa Miller, who's Traveler Information Manager at the Utah Department of Transportation. We want to find out what Utah is doing. There's some pretty interesting stuff happening out there. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us on Where We Live. I appreciate it. Sure. Good morning. So your statewide traffic signal system has been regarded as one of the most advanced in the country. Why? Tell us about it. Absolutely. And we're really um, very, very happy to have such a sophisticated uh, network. Um, 
So back in 2011, um, we've been working on the system for quite a while, and our um, UDOT leadership came to us and said, really, what would it take for our UDOT signals to be world-class? And that means um, signal, uh, coordination timing, special event planning, um, operation during crashes and things like that. And we really took a, a look at the operational trends. Are things getting better or worse? What are our areas of most need? Um, and we really uh, prioritized um, our staffing and our budget to, to really meet the workload and make sure that we could be as world-class as possible. Okay, so what does world-class mean exactly? Because we, we've been talking about a lot of things with Jack here in Connecticut, and you know, people who drive an awful lot think that traffic is all about them, right? People in cars, but traffic is about more than just getting people in cars from one place to another. It's about safety, it's about pedestrians, it's about bikes, and it's about air quality, too. I mean, tell us about what world-class means to you in Utah, Lisa. Exactly, Don, and you just hit on all of the big ones there. Um, we certainly have um, a, a smaller population in Utah than some other states around the country. We have a population of about 2.9 million, um, but we do expect an 86% increase by 2050. Um, and in Utah, we have 1,908 traffic signals, and 60% of those are owned by the Department of Transportation. But um, really, uh, it, some of your callers um, have, have mentioned they, they really don't uh, they're really not concerned with the jurisdictional boundaries. And certainly from a Department of Transportation perspective, um, you know, we have our own uh, signals, we have our own networks. And um, one of the things that we really made sure we, we needed to take care of was that all cities, municipalities, counties, UDOT, are on the same signal communications network. And from our Traffic Operations Center, we have connectivity to 88% of our traffic signals are, are UDOT traffic signals and nearly 80% of the non-UDOT signals. So because of that connectivity through our fiber optic network, we're really able to be very strategic about the timing and we get real-time data back from our traffic signals that we can use to tweak uh, timing and to manage the system better. So, and one of the benefits is people not sitting around in traffic quite as much, not lost productivity, and not cars idling, causing all sorts of pollution, which is a problem. Exactly. And um, one of our main arterial highway routes that's adjacent to our Interstate 15 is called Bangor Highway. And uh, back uh, a couple years ago, we did retime all of the signals on the corridor using this uh, data. We call it signal performance metrics data. And we saw a southbound travel time savings of 1.1 minutes, which doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot, but really when you're moving uh, platoons of vehicles along a corridor, any opportunity we have to, to squeeze any time out is incredible. Um, and we did see a 52% increase in the travel time reliability on a corridor. So how long is it going to take me to get from my office to home or from my house to the grocery store? The travel time reliability component of that is really important so people can plan effectively. So, so Jack, I just want to put this to you because you design traffic systems here in Connecticut. And as I said before, you know, we've got very old grid systems. We've got old, you know, horse pathways that got turned into roads. I was just out in Salt Lake City earlier this year, and it's a beautiful place, but it's also kind of flat mostly in the in the center city. And there's big, long stretches where you can make a grid and traffic lights can just go one to the other. You can see your destination in the distance. We don't, we don't have the same thing here in Connecticut, right? We don't have a, lo a lot of these long boulevards that are able to easily be synced up. That, that's right. Um, some of our cities, though, are pretty conducive to it. Um, there's quite a good grid system. And say, for example, New Haven, 
And um, there is quite a sophisticated uh, traffic signal system there. But as Lisa alludes to, um, the backbone of these is a very solid communication system. And uh, it's th- those are difficult to maintain or esta- establish between jurisdictions. But um, Connecticut's working on it, and um, there is, is, is much of that in place right now. Uh, stand by for a second, Lisa. I want to bring into the conversation Stephen Smith. He's a research professor in robotics at Carnegie Mellon University in my hometown of Pittsburgh. There's a place where there's a lot of windy roads, rivers, bridges, everything gets in the way. So traffic's very difficult. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks. Maybe you can tell us, about, tell us about the smart signals that you're using in Pittsburgh. How do they work? Uh, yeah, we've been uh, looking for the past five years at uh, this sort of prob- problem of um, you know improving urban flows. Uh, flows in urban in the Pittsburgh environment, particularly. We've, uh, um, you know, Pittsburgh-like. I guess I'm hearing uh, in in uh, where you are uh, is a particular challenge uh, when you think about reducing congestion. You, Pittsburgh is, uh, you know, is fundamentally a triangle. It's wedged between two mountains with, with tunnels that come in. So there really isn't uh, a way to to kind of build out, uh, you know, add capacity, make bigger roads to kind of solve congestion. So it really sort of turns into can you improve the, the flow on, on uh, surface streets. What we've, what we've uh, been evolving over the last couple of years is uh, uh, a technology that really uh, sort of focuses on uh, controlling the signals by sort of a, watching the actual traffic in real time and adjusting the green patterns based on the actual tr- flow that the intersections see approaching them. Uh, so uh, we, you know, we we call them smart signals. Uh, um, but essentially, you know, we're we're looking at uh, signals that, rather than being programmed uh, in advance, uh, uh, are are reacting to the actual traffic flows and, and making the decisions about where to allocate the green based on the the flows that they see coming. In, and intersections he's coming in, in different directions. And what sort of improvements are you seeing in all this? We heard well, a bit from what's, yeah, we, what's happening in Utah. What's happening in Pittsburgh? Yeah, we've, we've, so we've, we, uh, I guess in 2012, did an initial pilot test of our technology um, on uh, a nine-intersection grid pattern in the uh, East Liberty region of Pittsburgh, a couple miles from campus here. Um, we got very good results there. Um, you know, we, you know, sort of measuring... Uh, Various kinds of routes through the network, uh, we get a 25% reduction in travel times. Uh, not so much because vehicles are going faster, but they're stopping less. We sort of get, we see a, a um, you know 40% reduction in the amount of idle time, 30% uh, reduction in number of stops. Uh, actually, the organization that funded us originally was interested most in the quality of the air. We didn't really measure the quality, but sort of using a standard uh, um, uh, fuel consumption model, we, we kind of estimate or project that we're reducing emissions by 20, 21%. So a very strong result. Uh, you know, uh, so we've, we got a lot of momentum from that pilot. We've been expanding the pilot since then. Now we're, at this point, we're controlling a, a network of 50 intersections, uh, you know, expanding out from the original. Hmm. And uh, each each time we've expanded, we've sort of redone this evaluation, you know, consistently are getting the, the same kind of improvements that I've told you about. Let's quickly get to a couple phone calls here. Steve is calling from Hartford. Hi there, Steve. 
I'm very interested in, in uh, computer models of physical systems, very riveting stuff, I know. But uh, this seems to me like a, a really you know, broad field for that to be applied in. I, I know, to me, a traffic jam has always kind of felt a lot like a damped oscillator. And so I'm wondering, what, what maybe for your guests to answer, what's the sophistication level of your models? I mean, how much can you scale out? What do these things look like? Or how far out time-wise can you look at things? And, and does, does traffic have a, a wave function, I guess, is my question. And I'll take the answer off the air. Well, thank you very much for the question. Jack, you want to jump in on his, uh, on his question there? Well, it's... it's uh... I'm I'm not sure of a wave function, but um, what what we try to do with a system is is uh, predict what's coming, um, either with a time-based system, or actually measure what's coming with detection in the roadway and um, switch the system to the appropriate timing plan. What Steve and Lisa are referring to are more adaptive tra- traffic signal systems, which would. Um, respond in real time to the demand. From what you're hearing from from Steve and, and Lisa, I mean, is that something that you think that we could apply more broadly here in Connecticut? Yes, it's it's actually it's on its way. Um, the first system that I'm aware of is in the town of Greenwich. I believe it's under construction right now, and it, it uh, w- should be in, in place uh, very soon. And I'm anxious to see if the results are um, can be repeated that's been experienced in Pittsburgh. I want to get to a, another call from Andrew in Norwich. Hi there, Andrew. I have uh, recently, uh, in the town of Norwich, uh, we have a, a, a fairly busy commercial strip on uh, Long Route 82. And the state had recently um, come up with a proposal to turn the intersections from traffic lights into traffic circles. And um, it seemed kind of crazy to me because... You're taking a lot of traffic and throwing them into a traffic circle where you're relying on the driver's uh, observation as opposed to uh, the the technical aspects of, of having traffic lights in place. And I was, I'm, I'm wondering if that's a trend, um, if you could speak to that. Thank you so much for the question, Andrew. We've talked about this in the program, too, Jack. This is a, a fascinating thing. In part, uh, traffic circles are, are put into place because... In theory, they're supposed to be safer, right? They eliminate the possibility that someone's going to come through an intersection uh, trying to get through a yellow light and T-bone you and, and cause a terrible, terrible accident. But that's just one thing. What, what do you say to them about the possibilities of, of more roundabouts or traffic circles coming to Connecticut? Well, I, I, I think you're going to see a lot more roundabouts coming. I think um, circular intersections have got a bad rap because everybody here goes to the Cape for the summer and, and sits <laughs> s- sits on the Bourne Bridge. But uh the um, they're they're a really exciting improvement, um, and it all depends on whether they fit or if the traffic volumes are sufficient to support one. But what's not to like about a, um, a control of an intersection where you don't actually stop? So, um, but 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 this is I think what the caller is getting at, and this is an important point. Um, that he's concerned that we're leaving it up to user error, right? We're leaving it up to the quality of the drivers who enter a circle and hopefully know what they're doing to guide themselves through as opposed to a, a technological solution. But but you're saying that, that that can actually be something that allows traffic to flow much more easily. That's right. You know, there's been uh, studies in uh, Europe that show that uh, um, traffic is actually safer when, when you um, introduce less control. And I'm not saying you want to go that far as they've done and remove all signs and pavement markings, but um, I 
fully expect the Connecticut driver to be able to adapt to a roundabout and to drive those safely and to reduce uh, collisions at, at those kind of intersections. But before we take a break, and, and I have to let you go, Stephen, are, are you looking to expand what you're doing in Pittsburgh to any other cities around the nation? Maybe you want to come to Connecticut at some point? Uh, yeah, we'd, lo- we'd love to get there. Uh, we're, um, I guess we've, we're in discussions with a, a number of uh, different uh, uh, possible deployments. We, we have, we're talking with, um, we're actually doing a study uh, for the city of Burlington right now in Vermont. Uh, that's a smaller location. We're also uh, sort of expanding in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, we're looking now to push into the downtown Triangle area, which is. Uh, it's really and and uh, over on the North Shore where the stadiums are. So, um, uh, yeah, we, we're we're very much interested in pushing this technology out, and uh, and uh, we're looking for any opportunities. Uh, we'd love to improve your traffic flow. <laughs> well, thank thank you so much, Stephen. Stephen Smith is research professor in robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks for joining us. Sure, uh, Lisa Miller. How about you? Are are other uh, cities and and states looking at what Utah is doing and say, hey, we want a little piece of that? Quite a few, actually. Um, and Utah and uh, Purdue University, Indiana, DOT, were all part of um, an AASHTO implementation initiative back in 2013. And since then, um, Overland Park, Kansas, um, Minnesota, Georgia, Florida, Wisconsin, Virginia, Departments of Transportation, Las Vegas, um, and some other agencies have implemented these traffic signal performance measures based on the software that is available um, to them, and it was that software was developed in-house at uh, the Utah Department of Transportation with help from Purdue and Indiana DOT. Um, and there's quite a few other interested um, parties as well. But one of the great components is um, there's there's really no central system that's required. All of this data is coming back from our traffic signals through FTP connections from a web server, and it's available to the public on a website with no password at all. So if you're curious about what's going on at the signal by your house, you can go ahead and log on and check it out. Hey, Lisa, thanks so much. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having us. Lisa Miller's Traveler Information Manager of the Utah Department of Transportation. Uh, before we run into uh, a break here, let's go to Wayne in Plainville. Hi, Wayne. Hi, John. I want to ask the traffic engineer about the traffic light on Route 9 in both directions, under the Aragoni Bridge in Middletown. Oh, I know about this one, right? You're, you're going at full speed. You're heading down a highway. You get into Middletown. You're heading to the beach. Not that this is ever me. And then all of a sudden, you just stop right underneath the Aragoni Bridge. What's up with that, Jack? Well, it's it's certainly uh, not expected, is it? It's it's uh, <laughs> you're 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 exactly right, John. You're driving down an expressway, and and there's a traffic light there. Um, I think that um, we all should be happy to hear that uh, the Department of Transportation is has some projects um, that they're planning that would take those out and uh, you know allow free flow through there. But in the meantime, we're all going to have to live with it, and. Um, you know, the, those locations exhibit a lot of um, things about traffic lights that we don't like. Um, a, a high-speed um, stoppage um, leads to rear, rear-end collisions. Um, the signals are, once you do stop, though, I do notice that you do get through the second one usually, so um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. 
Well, uh, Jack Carey, thanks so much for spending some time and uh, giving us some of your expertise on this really complicated and obviously interesting topic to a lot of our listeners. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Uh, Jack Carey is associated at Fuss and O'Neill, an engineering consulting firm. Boy, a lot of people wanted to join us. We got uh, a note here from Chris Brown, who's a, a bicycle advocate. He was talking about uh, bicycles actually stopping on those little lines in the road, and they can trigger the signals. Uh, if you want to send us a tweet, you can send it to at where we live. We'll be talking about one-way streets in New Haven coming up next. The red light says stop, the green light says go, the yellow light says wait until you know. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the national debate around immigration reform has focused on the policies of so-called sanctuary cities. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore these policies and shed light on how they affect our communities, both locally and nationally. Hope you can join us. Today we're talking about traffic and traffic design. Earlier we learned about the science behind traffic signals. Now we're going to look at plans to convert some of New Haven's one-way streets into two-way streets. It could make the city safer and easier to navigate. Joining us from a studio at Yale University in New Haven is Doug Hausladen, who's acting executive director of the New Haven Parking Authority and the director of transportation for New Haven. Doug, welcome back to our program. Thank you so much. Hey, real quick, before we get into some of the real details about your plan, I, I just have to ask, you've been listening to a little bit of this conversation. People really get passionate, angry, crazy about traffic. Could you just talk about that in the work that you do? Because people really feel like every single traffic light is timed to make them late for work. Every single pedestrian thinks that the intersection is really super dangerous. I mean, talk about how difficult a job it is in a city like New Haven to deal with all this stuff. Well, th- thanks, John. It's always a pleasure to deal uh, to help our public solve our problems together. And I think most times our signals are working as they are designed, and it's hard to tell someone, yes, I hear you that you're coming up on Poplar at Grand, and Poplar Street just has to wait because of Grand Avenue is the major arterial. Um, and so a lot of people uh, want what they want for themselves, and, and that's very understandable. Self-interest is a really powerful tool, uh, but we have to be able to channelize that energy into a more positive conversation, something as, as we've heard on the radio, things that we can do together to make, make our signals work even better. So, so talk about, uh, about this plan that's been in the works for a couple of years. What exactly does this entail? Because we know uh, the downtown grid of New Haven. There's some streets that go one way, some streets that go the other way. If you don't know the city very well, it could be easy to get turned around. What's behind the plan and what's going to happen here? Well, a number of factors are behind the plan. You know, the streets were converted starting in 1959 when traffic engineering was really focusing on VMT and throughput on signals. I think recently there's been a revolution in our industry, one that's uh, all to the better for other modes of transportation, pedestrians, transit, bicycles. Uh, and so for us here in New Haven, we're really concerned with the amount of traffic that's spent circling trying to find parking spaces. You know, there's an old saying in New Haven, one way in, no way out. Um, because it is very confusing for visitors, for guests, and for residents trying to make their way downtown. You know, some of the things that we're trying to do in New Haven is make our city more accommodating for our residents to come downtown and, and, and live, work, learn, and play, as well as our visitors. So things that we can't do right now, uh, we're really struggling to set up a downtown valet parking operation. And it all has to do with how many one-way streets we have and how long it would take to get a car back from a garage. <laughs> So that's the thing. I mean, New Haven has certainly changed. There's a lot of people going downtown wanting to experience some of the shopping and dining options, and they're just circling around. It's hard to get parking in some places because of that. So this is something that's going to take place over a little bit of time. What are some of the main places that it's going to affect? I mean, what major changes will we see? 
One thing first is we have to do a lot of upgrades of our signals in order to make sure that they are two-way capable. Thanks to a grant from the Connecticut DOT and the FA and, and uh, US DOT, we're going to be upgrading 15 intersections in our downtown. And thanks to our study, we were able to prepare those signals for conversion. And so, um, as we've as you can find in the internet, you know these are not inexpensive propositions. Each signal costs about a hundred thousand to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And so, in order to plan for that, you need to have the partnership of your local board of alders, and of course, from the mayor, Mayor Tony Harp, who is very supportive of making sure that our our uh, transportation network is more bike friendly and transit friendly. I want to quickly go to Josh, who's calling from Hartford. Hey, Josh, go ahead. I wanted to talk about pedestrian crossings where you push a button and all the lights change and all the traffic stops. We have a ton of them here in Hartford. They seem to work terribly because for the pedestrian, it takes forever and they get impatient and they do what other cities do, which is that they cross with the traffic that's going parallel to them. And then the light changes and all the cars sit there and nothing happens and they fume and, I presume, hate pedestrians. <laughs> so Josh doesn't like these intersections with the signals. Uh, how about those, Doug, and their implementation in New Haven in this plan? I have a, I've been sounding like a broken record with my staff that once we improve these downtown signals, we're going to be having a serious conversation about a policy shift from all-exclusive pedestrian phases to concurrent phase crossing with push button. Uh, so one of the b- most important things to think about as a pedestrian is uh, connectivity for folks who can't cross the street as quickly as an able-bodied person. And so, um, you know, my father happens to be wheelchair-bound, and uh, we have a lot of folks pushing strollers. We have uh, folks who are a little slower on the uptick getting across the street. And so the all-exclusive phase uh, definitely serves a purpose, but I believe that through an upgrade in our signals and intelligent transportation systems, we can actually switch to concurrent phase crossing with perhaps a, um, a near-field Bluetooth responder that would actually signalize uh, an all-exclusive phase for certain populations. So it's something that we definitely need to work on in order to make travel flow happen. It's it's effectively, and, and uh, the gentleman from Fuss and O'Neill could talk more, um, it's really all about phase timing. Uh, you know, if you have one, one leg of traffic going and then the other leg, and then you stop everything for pedestrians, that's three phases, and you can't necessarily get a smooth travel flow that way. When you are looking through this uh, new traffic pattern in New Haven, obviously, as we said before, it's not just about cars. It's about uh, pedestrians, bikes, everything else. Talk about some of the the challenges that are posed there. You know, uh, people walking into intersections that have been one way for a very, very long time and maybe not looking at cars coming in the other direction, that sort of thing. I mean, how do you take the pedestrian and bicycle safety into account? Number one is that the driving speeds are the biggest problems for bike and pedestrian uh, safety. You know, at 20 miles an hour, there's a 5% chance of death for a pedestrian being struck by a vehicle. At 30, it's 45%. And at 40 miles an hour, it's 85% likelihood of death. So number one is we have to be able to smooth and calm our traffic. I think the start-stop, people have been talking about corridors. Uh, The start-stop on a corridor is really aggravating for a lot of drivers and tends to lead to higher speeds to think that they can outrace and outtime the light. We've been uh, pretty successful this uh, this past two years working with our uh, signal operator, you know, our engineer Bijan Noti. Um, we've been retiming a lot of our corridors, so Whaley, Whitney, Dixwell, an- uh, the Annex, and George Street, in order to have that traffic flow be smoother and more consistent. Um, I think for for us and the one to two way conversions, you know, you don't think about it uh, necessarily, but as a bus customer, you're going to have to you're going to have to walk around the block or, or two blocks in order to get your transfer, rather than walking across the street to take a transfer. And for us in New Haven, that's really important for the thirty percent of households that have zero cars.
Before we run out of time, Doug, uh, I know that we've talked about some of the new technologies, including a place in Pittsburgh. These are things that you're looking at as well, right? These new technologies that hopefully will allow us to to time our lights and to improve our traffic flow through just new technology. That's correct. You know, I had a chance to meet Professor Kumar, a colleague of the gentleman from Carnegie Mellon, on Tuesday down in Washington. Uh, and we're, we're talking about uh, how can we bring that technology here. And additionally, bike signals are really – I heard about loop detection for bicycles. Yeah. Well, I was down in Fayetteville, Arkansas, on the Skull Creek Trail and, and saw uh, radar detection for bicycles. So on our Edgewood Avenue cycle track that the Connecticut DOT is funding through their community connectivity program, uh, we're going to be installing bike signals that are two-way bike signals on every, on every traffic light there and as well as a radar detection to signalize uh, what's called a rapid you – know, a, 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 rapid rectangular flashing beacon for cars to slow tr- to stop traffic for bicycles that cross. Hmm. Now, the USDOT has has a $40 million Smart Cities Challenge. You're going after some of this money, and, and I assume it's to do more of this sort of work, right? That's right. I think uh, most importantly, you know, we've been seeing a lot of congestion mitigation uh, tr- uh, things tried in, around Europe. Uh, but now what's the next generation of technology? And we're going to be ready for the driverless vehicles here in New Haven, Connecticut. And and more importantly, since we're working on a fiber to the home project, you know, how can we, since we have communication to every street and every intersection in New Haven, how can we revolutionize our mobility services as a city for our residents? Um, you know, that paired with our FTA alternatives analysis, which is a citywide corridor bus and transit study. Uh, we're really looking forward to the uh, to the next 10 years of transportation here in New Haven and making it a better place to live, work, learn, and play for Mayor Harp. I, I should just uh, ask you about a big uh, transportation funding forum that was held in Hartford earlier this week. You know, the governor has this big plan to invest in our infrastructure. And I think we're, we think an, an awful lot about big highways like 95 and, and 84. We think about bridges that maybe slow down what's happening on, on Metro North or Amtrak. W- what did you take away from that transportation funding that uh, affects specifically the city of New Haven? Well, uh, we've been we've been the beneficiary of a lot of funding and a lot of priorities because of the central city uh, location of New Haven. The Hartford line has been invested in and are going to be upgraded and open in about a year and change, uh, as well as the Q Bridge investments. I think most importantly for us at the at the local level is making sure that those funds are locked into place in a lockbox. You know what we need to pr- provide communities and businesses and residents in New Haven is a guaranteed of infrastructure money so that we can actually plan for. Uh, the investments that we're going to make so we can grow the way that we need to grow in the next 20 years. And that's a big piece of it for you. I mean, all this construction around the Q Bridge, these two major highways intersecting right in the middle of your city, and the people have to be able to get off of those streets, which are be, have been, uh, been rebuilt for the last 10 years or so, onto your grid there. So what's really happening at the DOT and what's happening for the major highway systems across the state of Connecticut has a huge impact on your city. Could you just talk about that for a minute or so, Doug? Most definitely. I think any community that is near a highway is always concerned with diversion traffic. So if there's a blockage in the uh, in the Q Bridge, you might see people driving through City Point or driving through uh, the East Shore and the Annex. And, and for us, you know, to have uh, the investments in the Q Bridge has been uh, a blessing. Uh, you know, it's been a painful 10 years to get here, but uh, we've opened up and we're going to be seeing smooth traffic. I think for, for us in this big five-year, uh, the five-year ramp-up, 
Also, we're looking at the $25 million of extra capital dollars being allocated to CT Transit uh, in FY17. And for us, you know, that's the crucial, that's also a crucial piece is in order to provide for additional mitigation of congestion, you have to provide people with options and alternatives. And, and for us here in New Haven, we really firmly believe that uh, having choice in your, in your uh, mobility options is the only way to get people to think outside the car. Do you ever sit at a traffic light somewhere in the city of New Haven and just, you know, get aggravated? Are you like uh, one of the other drivers who's trying to get to work or are you pretty zen about this because you know exactly how all these systems work and all the all the challenges <laughs> that are behind them? I'll tell you, it's day-to-day. My Zenness and my staff will tell you that my Zenness is never 100%. But I think twofold, if I'm driving my work truck, I actually do have a, a way to change the signals, and I avoid that because it's, it's <laughs> that's rude. <laughs> that, that, is, that is kind of rude, but that's interesting. I didn't know that. You can change the signals from your work truck, huh? Well, that's something we're, we're really focusing on on O'Reilly Avenue corridor, our Grand Avenue, Dixwell, Congress Avenue, the, the most heavily transited uh, corridors. We're trying to get to a place where we can have a, a signal prioritization for our transit uh, drivers. So uh, right now we have emergency responders get a priority one, a priority two signalization where they can change the signal in advance. And we're going to be working in the next two years to bring that to our, our CT transit network because we now have the upgraded technology uh, after we install these traffic signals to make that a possibility. You're going to have to remind me of this uh, next time I see I'm just going to want to take a ride with you around town. We'll get every place fast. We'll probably even find some parking spaces. I'll try my best to make it very, very interesting. Uh, <laughs> it can be a little mundane for a lot of people, but I really do wake up every day blessed to have this job and really happy to help serve the residents of New Haven get, get to work faster and get home faster. The Director of Transportation for the City of New Haven, Doug Houseley, is also Acting Executive Director of the New Haven Parking Authority. He joined us today from the studio at Yale University in New Haven. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. A lot of people joined us in this conversation. John tweeted us, traffic enforcement does change behavior, even on a very local scale. Compare East Haven to Milford. Um, We got a a few tweets, including one from Josh, who loves traffic circles. They're great. They make traffic go faster and reduce accidents. Joan says, roundabouts are impossible for pedestrians unless they're controlled by lights as well. So a little bit of a split decision there on roundabouts. And this from Maria. I attend a church in Rocky Hill that's on a road connecting two main drags. Every Sunday, if I don't want to kill the day waiting for the light to change, I take a left turn while the light is red. I believe God will forgive me this sin, but if I get pulled over one day, will the Rocky Hill police? Is it legitimate to say the light takes too darn long to turn? You might have to take that up with the Rocky Hill police, Maria. Thank you so much for your tweets and keep them coming at Where We Live. You can always find us online at wnpr.org slash where we live. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Kyan Wolf is our technical producer. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us.